Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. Views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time. Rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near If you've seen the seas spill over And the mountains shake, break and fall If the moon ever turns blood red And you can't see the sun at all Rise up, no matter if the prize is high in the skies Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio On the Black Talk Radio Network A program that seeks to educate, inform and agitate On the issue of 21st century legalized slavery Hosted by social activists and spoken word poets Max Parthas, and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the April 4th, 2018 broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio in our sixth season, and it's National Poetry Month. On this day in history, the shooting of Walter Scott occurred on April 4, 2015 in North Charleston, South Carolina, following a daytime traffic stop for a non-functioning brake light. Scott, an unarmed black man, was fatally shot by Officer Michael Slager, who received 20 years in prison after the judge in the case said he viewed the shooting as a murder. In 1949, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO Treaty, is signed. And in 1968, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. And then in 1928, Maya Angelou, American poet and author, was born. She once said, 
I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And I think both Scotty and I can relate to that quote. Our guest tonight is Steve Fishman. Steve Fishman is a longtime journalist for the New York Magazine for a decade and is now a podcaster. His previous podcast was on Bernie Madoff called Ponzi Supernova. His new podcast, Empire on Blood, is a seven-part series that launched on March 28th. It's about the journey he took with Calvin Bowery. Uh, Please uh, correct me later if I say his name wrong. A man who was wrongfully convicted of murder and recently exonerated on March 21st, 2018, after 22 years in prison. Steve talks to everyone, the cops, the prosecutor, even the person he believes is the real killer. He takes listeners into the belly of the Bronx criminal justice system and explains why and how young black men have gotten incarcerated in such large numbers. During the Slave Catcher Chronicles tonight, we'll cover this bombshell headline revelation from this incarceration nation. It says, only black people have been prosecuted under Mississippi's gang law since 2010. In the lead-up to this year's legislative session in Mississippi, supporters of a tougher gang law in the state talked a lot about the need to arrest white people, but in an ironic twist, the Jackson Free Press has learned that everyone, everyone arrested under the existing gang law from 2010 through 2017 were African American. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is Pashaw Beverly Randolph, October 8, 1825 through July 29, 1875. He was an African-American medical doctor, an occultist, a spiritualist, a trance medium, an abolitionist, and a writer. He is notable as perhaps the first person to introduce the principles of erotic alchemy to, the, to North America and, according to A.E. White, established the earliest known Rosicrucian order in the United States. A rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Richard Phillips, a Detroit man whose murder conviction was thrown out after he spent 45 years in prison and was exonerated last Wednesday and won't face, face a second trial. As usual, we'll dissect and disseminate current news and events related to the 13th Amendment slavery from the perspectives of slavery abolitionists. So let's get started. If you got a question or a comment, you can call us at 704-802-5026. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com, Black Talk Radio Network. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? Hey, greetings to you, Brother Max. Hey, greetings to you, Brother Max. Man, I am kind of worn out tonight. I got to tell you, it's been a long day, but I'm, I'm worn out tonight, man. So uh, my plan is just to ride along, uh, try to uh, have a great conversation with our guest, and then uh, maybe try to take some of these stories and make sense out of them, you know? Um, understandable. You know I understand about being tired, man. Uh, Wednesday is Wednesday nights and it's after the first. Been uh, working on the reports for, you know, our podcasters and um, uh, programs on Black Talk Radio Network, um, all our YouTube videos and all that type of stuff, man. So, um, yeah, I totally understandable. And then you spent... You know, most of your afternoon with your wife at, at the hospital, and we know how tiring it can be in places like that, man. So it's totally understandable. I'll try to do my best. Uh, it's good, man. Hey, I want to uh, 
shout out about some links as well too uh sure you know this is the second anniversary of our project the incarceration nation in black and white it was uh constructed not long after we did the america is ferguson series and based on the information and the research that we had went through through that entire year we put together this wonderful presentation featuring some of the best spoken word artists in the country literally and it shows the exact uh, rates of incarceration for every state in the union based on black and white. And it's, well, it's just mind blowing to see it, you know, and then to have those poets behind it, just really breaking it all down is awesome. So if you want to check that out, it's on New Abolitionist Radio right now. It's about 12 minutes long. It features three artists on it with all of the states combined. So oh. that's one thing. And uh, I heard yesterday day before yesterday I was listening to the Tando show and I heard my brother uh, after he listened to Freestyle uh, one of these uh, tracks off of our CD Endgame and I got to tell you Scotty I was uh, I was humble and uh, very grateful for how you felt about that and the words that he said indeed oh I certainly feel the same way getting yes yes well, thank you thank you brother yeah we put our heart and soul into that CD Endgame we spent nearly a decade putting it together with some of the greatest musicians and producers we could find in the whole country and uh, we wanted it to be something that would last through the ages and we like to think that that has been the case so far so you can get that anytime you like from cd baby uh it goes under max impact or you can find it on amazon or any one of the major uh, outlets for cds just type in maximum impact Endgame. So, yeah, and that's 10 years to this month that uh, it's been out, 10 years. Yeah, I didn't know that it was part of a, a CD. I just know I came across the track on YouTube. I was like, man, I love this track, man. <laughs> no doubt. I think I sent you a few of them. Yeah, you uh, did. Time as well. So, yeah, man, that's uh, a couple of things that I, I wanted to tell people about. And then there was one other thing. Uh, it's Poetry Month, you know, uh, National Poetry Month. So I've been asking some of my artist friends and poets friends to focus on the 13th during Poetry Month and produce something for us, you know, whether it be a poem or a song or whatever it may be. And they've been doing that. And I'm really appreciative of that. So I created a forum on Facebook temporarily, but we're going to move it to the Black Talk Radio Network very soon called Abolitionist Art, Music, and Poetry. And uh, I'll put that on New Abolitionist Radio uh, if you really want to be moved by some music and poetry, just go there and check it out. You would be surprised at what you find. And Scotty, that would be a great place for you to go ahead and uh, find any tracks that you like to play on your uh, message music. Or I can, you know, upload it to this digital station, Black Talk Radio, um, as well. So I, I'm definitely. I was just talking about on Tando Radio Show the power of words from a earlier conversation I was having with uh, one of our network family members, uh, Jenna out of Tennessee, man, and just the power of words, man. People, I, I think, underestimate the power of words. They they underestimate the spoken word, and, you know, words have a lot of power behind them, and so it's great to hear that these poets were very receptive to you, you know, picking up uh, um, participating in this project uh, focused on modern-day slavery and human trafficking via the 13th Amendment. 
Exactly. Every movement needs a soundtrack, brother. And we got some talented people out there that know the whole story. <laughs> and they have been dropping some jewels. And they've been dropping them for a while now. So we've got video, music on there, written word, whatever you're looking for, you can find it there. And we'll also be putting up artwork from painters and draw and sketches and people who put things together in that form of art as well. Well, we still have about eight minutes uh, before our scheduled guests will be joining us. I'll be actually calling them to connect them to the program. So, you know, on this day in history, um, Dr. King was assassinated by a white terrorist, as so the story goes. But, of course, we know that that was a state-sponsored assassination um, because of the various things that Dr. King was working on. And, you know, what What are your thoughts on his legacy? I already, you know, I had the host hand, though, because uh, Dave is off until Monday, but I had the host hand, though, and, you know, I just really take issue with all of these different people, even people who knew Dr. King, who are misconstruing, who are, are um, connecting his legacy to things that he was didn't even have a part of, like this gun, you know, legislation. Or, or so-called uh, anti-Second Amendment gun control uh, movement that's out there. Uh, my thoughts on what's going on with Martin Luther King Jr. right now is, you know, I've done a lot of research on King, and I can't claim to be an expert on him, but I have seen some very rare speeches and read and listened to his words in a search of him talking about abolition, because I had always wanted to know what was it during that period of time where King and Uh, Malcolm were alive that the prison industrial complex was not an issue and we know that convict leasing lasted all the way up until the 60s in South Carolina in 1928 in Alabama so I was very curious and I found some jewels where they both actually spoke on those issues to some small degree but it wasn't the thing that people wanted to hear at the time really for me Martin Luther King Jr. can be I mean his essence of what I believe he was can be summed up in two of his quotes the first is this Nothing in all the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that, in the end, we will not remember the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Those two things together tell you what he was all about right there. He was fighting against the grain. Even his own people were betraying him to a very large degree. You had pastors and bishops out there who was uh, siding with the white supremacists, like literally. And that opened the door for King to be, uh, for them to be able to come on to King and surveil him in the way that they he was doing without much complaint. You um, know, you just raised the issue. Media. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Max. To today's media exploits Martin Luther King Jr. Even his his legacy is owned by the Ford companies and a few others like that. And his actual estate is is so, I mean, they're so short on funds. At one time, the son was ready to sell the Bible, his personal Bible, and mm-hmm. literally sued his sister in order to get that to happen. Fortunately, I think it ended up being declared that it was a national treasure and they uh, kept it with the estate. But literally, they were that broke, he was trying to sell his daddy's Bible. So they're exploiting his image and they do that to all our heroes because they're trying to craft for us the perfect protester the good negro this is how you should be and then they'll point out his nice little words that they agree with but they skip the stuff that i just mentioned in those two quotes completely you won't hear that much i might be the only guy you heard today 
who quoted that there's nothing in the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity because it points to people in their face that you are ignorant and stupid and doing this in a wrong way. Yeah, and so, a yeah, lot of people. the hell out of them. Yeah, a lot. And they take his words out of context. And, you know, people just pick and choose. Um, but it is most sad that his own children, um, not all of them, but some of them, um, I have sold out his legacy, literally, as you were just talking about, but also ideologically. They sold, and, and then also those who were uh, supposedly in his inner circle have sold out today and are on the other side. And one of the things, though, that, ca- that came across my mind today, and you just reminded me because I forgot to bring it up. I was reading this article that was distorting King's legacy like he was promoting black power through through black business ownership. Certainly he recognized economic power and the power of the boycott and what have you. And he was not against black black businesses, but you I, I have never heard him talk about, you know, black businesses. But one of the things that you just mentioned about even people in the black community was against him. When they went to Alabama and he was on his poverty tour, it was a lot of people who wanted to keep segregation in place because they were some of the very few black entrepreneurs at the time who were profiting from a captive market. They didn't have to compete with other businesses. So, of course, they would they called King a troublemaker. Oh, why you want to come down here and upset the order of things? And, and you know, I read a quote earlier where he was talking about in his letter from a Birmingham jail that you know we got some people who want order over justice Scotty I don't know if it's me but your voice seems to be going in and out we can hear you but it's well actually I'm getting echo back from your line all right so, yeah, man, they're exploiting the hell out of them. And uh, I, I saw something that I felt ashamed of not too long ago was during the March for Our Lives where Martin Luther King Jr. III, which is the one that tried to sell the Bible, brought his granddaughter uh, onto the CNN uh, stand that they had there, which was talking about the marches itself. and had his granddaughter uh, talk in a pro-remove-the-Second-Amendment uh, stance. And I, and I just felt some kind of way about that. I was like, wow. I mean, does she even know that Martin Luther King Jr. applied for a gun license and was refused? Because that was the issue they were dealing with. Remember racism. Yeah, the you know very I mean? first... And people act like it's post-racial America. Yeah, like the, the ve- same thing is not happening right now. The very first gun control uh, was racist and it was passed in, if unless it was an earlier passage, but during the colonial time, the Virginia Slave Code stripped free black people of their gun ownership rights because the fear was that, hey, these black people that that are not in slavery may feel kind of, might feel some kind of way about slavery and use those guns to help end slavery, which they later did in, during the Civil War, which you correctly deemed the greatest slavery rebellion on the North American continent was the Civil War. Yeah, it's it was almost as successful as Haiti. We didn't get a nation, but we got integration. <laughs> 
Well, but, uh, well, we actually we, we actually prevented. Like I mentioned to Jenna today, um, I said, um, if not for them, we'd be living in the Confederate States of America today. Confederate States of America. Yes, and there is a series that is titled that, where you can go and see what it would look like, and they really do a good job of showing what it would look like. It's called the Confederate States of America. You can probably find it on YouTube. Uh, amazing to see. Uh, speaking of amazing, you know, on Tando's show the other day when he was listening to Freestyle, I also heard him talking about some other things, and one of the things that he did was play a clip from, uh, he wasn't the Attorney General at the time, but Eric Holder speaking about how they need to literally brainwash people mm-hmm. about gun control and mm-hmm. to do it every day in the schools using the students. And then I saw another video that he didn't, I don't know if he saw it, but later on, because that was in 1995, but while he was the attorney general, he was grilled in the Senate. And they asked him, they quoted what he said about brainwashing people, and they asked him what he meant. And he specifically said, I'm talking about young black men I'm like, oh, my God. You know, like, you're hearing it from the horse's mouth. This is a plan they have been putting into action now since 1995, at least, in order to brainwash you into thinking a certain way. It's, it's right. amazing. I'm going to put the uh, the links to that on New Abolitionist Radio so you can hear with your own ears. Uh, and, you know, the Tando show broke it down in detail, but as I said, he might not have seen the follow-up video, which happened while he was the attorney general. And he clearly said that I plan on brainwashing young black men. Well, Max, we are joined uh, by our guest, uh, Mr. Steve Fishman, who is joining us on the line. So, Max, if you would like to introduce him once again, uh, please do so. Uh, yes, yes, indeed. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, Brother Steve Fishman. He's a longtime journalist and writer for New York Magazine, 10 years, right? And you're yep. now a podcaster. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, one of your podcasts was on Bernie Madoff, uh, and you had it. It was called the Ponzi Supernova. You can find that, I believe. Is it on YouTube? No, it's on iTunes. Oh, is it on your podcast? It's on iTunes. Okay. Uh, his new podcast, Empire on Blood, is a seven-part series, and it was launched just this last March 28th. It's about the journey he took with. Uh, is it Bori? Bori? Yeah. It. Yeah, it's Calvin Buari. Yeah, Buari. Buari, all right. Calvin Buari, a man who was wrongfully convicted of murder and recently exonerated on March 21st. Congratulations and welcome to Freedom, brother. 2018, after 22 years in prison. And and I like where they were saying this, and I found this in an article. Where it said that you talked to everybody, even the dude that you thought was the killer, the real killer. And then uh, that you take listeners through the belly of the Bronx criminal justice system and explains why and how young black men have gotten incarcerated in such large numbers. That's the part right there that I really look forward to hearing, particularly in the light of uh, a brother like Khalif Browder and what he had to go through. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's an incredibly tragic case. And, you know, he fits in uh, to a a situation where you have cops who have a certain outlook, you have prosecutors who have a certain outlook, they have pressures on them coming from above, and I think now, the case that I followed starts in the 90s, which was a particularly extreme time for this point of view, but it was it was really a moment where I think that people said, people in authority said, well, 
if he didn't do this one, he did another. And so there was a kind of air of lock them up and let the warden sort it out. And, you know, we're, we're, we're feeling the effects now, and we are seeing dozens and dozens and dozens of people, in particular men who were young and in their 20s, I'm talking about in the 1990s now, who were swept up and became part of what I think is rightfully called a mass incarceration. A whole generation of young black men who were, now all of them weren't, you know, weren't on the right side of the law at all the times. The the man that I profiled, Calvin Buari, the man I really took this seven-year journey with, he, you know, he was a drug dealer. He he was a guy who was a very successful businessman. Uh, his business happened to be crack. But does that mean that you can then come along and say, you know, I'm not going to arrest you for being a drug dealer, but I am going to arrest you for doing these two murders that you didn't commit. Uh, we can't live like that. can't live like that. I would have to um, agree with you, Mr. Fishman, on that point. Um, when I when I think about certain crimes, like in the drug war and what they deem crimes, I try to judge it on an individual basis. Um, I call them some of these are crimes of survival that are produced by poverty. Uh, when you look at racial discrimination in the historic unemployment, especially of black men then, you know, some people will turn to all that is left to them to do in order to make money to survive. Now, I don't know if that was his case, because I'm going to keep it real. I got a cousin. There was no reason. Uh, he wasn't living in poverty. It was no reason for him to deal drugs, but he was mesmerized by the glamorization of drug dealing through in the media in terms of this crap music that they call gangster rap and and then the different movies. And he told me, my, uh, my little brother asked him, look, man, why you keep dealing these drugs? Ain't you made enough money? Um, you, you're not, you know, come from no poor family or, or nothing like that. You're not living in a hood. And he, and he flat out said, I was addicted to it. I was addicted to the lifestyle. So, you know, um, and also, I don't know if you are aware of, of the work of, what's the guy named uh, Gary Webb, um, who wrote that uh, series for, I think it was Mercury News at the time, which exposed the connections of the CIA to the cocaine trafficking, um, along with uh, Ricky Freeway Ross, uh, who has been quite uh, open about, you know, where he was getting his connections from to get that cheap uh, cocaine. So, you know, when, when before I condemn someone like Calvin Buari, I also had to consider these other things. I think that's a fair point. You know, and I think Calvin, you know, the podcast is called Empire on Blood, and, and I spend a lot of time talking to Calvin. And I will say, you know, I knew him later in life, so I've known him for seven years. He did 22 years for this murder that I don't believe he committed. And he took, you know, an incredible journey. He starts where you talk, uh, where, where you were just talking about. I mean, he does not come from a poor family. This is not the South Bronx 
This is the North Bronx where there's, you know, people have jobs, nice neighborhood there, there are lawns, cars, and, and, and Cal, you know, he wants more stuff. I mean, he sees people walking around, and who is it that has the stuff he wants? Well, you know, they're drug dealers, so naturally you're going to look up to people. And, and, and yet what I find amazing about Cal is having been with him for the last seven years, and I say been with him, let me not exaggerate that. I'm a, you know, a guy living on the outside in Brooklyn, New York. It's not like I took this journey with him, but I talk to him fairly frequently, and I, and I think I understand to some extent what was going through his mind at certain points. But what's incredible about Cal is that he in prison became this person who could lead a campaign for his freedom from a prison payphone. I mean, the way the, he had the whole system stacked against him. You know, they threw him in prison, and he was framed by a guy who who idolized him, who dealt drugs with him. The cops won him off the streets. Their interests adjoined. One uses the other. Cal goes to prison, and and. At some point, he buckles down. He develops patience, incredible discipline. I mean, Cal was a guy who refused to go out of his the jail cell because he stayed in and he focused on his case. He focused on also creating businesses. I mean, he had been a very successful crack distributor. And, you know, he he knew how to run a business. And he was determined when he came out that he would be a businessman this time legitimate because he knew he had developed these skills and he knew he had these gifts. And there's somehow Cal held on to that belief in himself, in his innocence for 22 years that he was doing, I mean, through all kinds of hopelessness. I mean, I'll give you one example. And in, in my podcast, Empire on Blood, I think there's a, a kind of an amazing scene where someone else confesses to the murders. Cal wins an appeal, but the cops and the prosecutor don't believe this guy's confession, and they go in and pressure him and get him to recant his confession. This is 10 years ago, so it takes another 10 years 10 years of, of facing incredible disappointment and overcoming it to, to really alone, I mean alone never giving up to, to finally stare down the government and get the evidence that finally sets him free So let me ask you this, did, did he have a support system on the outside, you know, that was helping him because, you know, we are aware of many different wrongfully convicted people, political prisoners like Mumia Abu-Jamal, Herman Bell, who's there in New York. And you got the police union trying to reverse the parole board's decision. So did Calvin have a support system? I, Calvin did have a support system, but, it, you know, it was an informal group of friends. And I'll say Calvin is a fairly charming man. And so he had a several women who would help him from time to time, you know, and, and, and Cal was somebody who could inspire people to 
to help him, he couldn't do it alone because, you know, uh, uh, as we all know, a prisoner, I mean, one of the, the key things about prison is you're isolated. You know, the only tool you have, the only contact that you have is, you know, you can have visitors and you can have, use the pay phone. And aside from that, you're powerless. So, you know, Cal really needed somebody on the outside. I think to some extent, you know, he he was hoping for someone uh, like me who could who could come along and try to tell his story to people who might be in a position of influence. But, you know, he also was able to enlist friends and supporters and people that he knew to do. And this was a crucial thing. Cal was always convinced that there had to be people at the scene of the crime who saw the person who really did it. And the, the cops had never found anybody. They'd done a kind of cursory examination of it. And guess what? You know, people didn't want to speak up to the cops. They didn't want to speak up at a time when there were murders going on. But Cal was convinced that if somebody would go back and canvas that area a witness could be found so he asked his his people to put up posters at the scene of the crime and this is 15 20 years later and and, and those posters had a picture of him it had the words free calvin buari wrongfully convicted and it had a phone number 20 years after his conviction a woman who had lived in the apartment building right next to the scene of the crime and then moved out of state, moved to North Carolina. She came home on a family reunion. She sees that poster that's been put up, and she says, oh, my God, I know Calvin didn't do this. And that's what gets the ball rolling. So it's the flukiest, the flukes, but, it, it, you know... It also has to do with Cal's persistence, his ability to rally people on the outside to help him. And, and, and I really think, you know, in so many of these cases, it's testimony to a kind of human will, a, a willpower. And, you know, it's, it's hard not to see the, the, the grace of God that, that smiles on you at some point at some point and then as you point out you know those few people those volunteers those people who can be mobilized to help you when you most need it and, and you know who can count on all those things coming together at once you know a common theme before i toss it to max to see if he has any questions we're having a little technical issues with his line but we're working through those but um one of the common themes that we see in these wrongful convictions, because we do a segment called the Underground Railroad uh, of these people who have been exonerated after wrongful convictions, is just prosecutorial misconduct is, is a common theme in these cases. And then also, it seems to be, you speak about willpower, but a, a seemingly lack of willpower on the behalf of the police to get the right person who did it. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think you see that in this case. You know, the cops and the prosecutor, all right, you know, it's Mayor Giuliani. He wants to clean up the streets. And, you know, it's true that the that the urban, that the black neighborhoods probably are the, 
the biggest victims of, of crimes of violence and, and crimes involving drugs. And lots of people really want the streets cleaned up. But but at the same time, the prosecutor's job is to seek justice, not conviction. And I think in their haste to accomplish what they felt was important, they felt that lots of things were justified. Now, one of the incredible things that, that I discovered and, and comes out in Empire on Blood, and this will not be a surprise to a lot of your listeners, but but to me the, the extent of it was surprising, is you had, in this case, cooperators as witnesses. So you had, I think it was four cooperators, people who had been associates of Calvin. Suddenly they come forward and they say, wait, I saw who the murderer was. It was Calvin Buari. But what's the background to that? You have the prosecutor able to put these people in jail or say to them, listen, you help us and no jail time. And it's an easy choice for a lot of people to make. In fact, there's one guy who actually is in prison who comes out of prison to testify and the prosecutor helps that person get out of prison early. So it is an incredible tool, an incredible weapon that the state is given to do what they what they decide is the right thing to do. You know, if you're a defense attorney, if you're a defendant, you give $50 to a, a witness to to take a taxi cab to the courtroom to testify, that's illegal. But you give somebody a get-out-of-jail-free card to testify, that's called justice. Now, the second thing that happens in Calvin's case, and I, you know, I read the transcripts, and I think this is really what converted me to, to his case and his cause, is the prosecutor goes to the judge and says, Your Honor, Calvin Buari is so dangerous that my witnesses fear for their lives. I need an order of protection. The judge says, okay, you've got your order of protection. Now, that means that the defense, the attorney and Calvin, do not know the names of the witnesses who are going to testify against him until they walk to the witness stand. Wow. Imagine if you can imagine trying to prepare your defense you can't without knowing exactly who the witnesses are going to be i mean you know now now those are those are legal <laughs> that's legal that's the system playing ball the way the system says it can play ball but there was another thing that happened in this situation that i i, I really feel goes beyond and much more towards what the point you brought up a little while ago about the, the kind of misconduct that we unfortunately see too often. There is the, the prosecution's chief witness against Calvin is his former drug partner. Now that drug partner, his name is Dwight, and I have become friends with Dwight. Dwight is actually now in prison for a a different murder and he and I have fairly frequent conversations and, and Dwight has opened up to me about a lot of stuff that happened during Cal's trial and at one point he tells me that he lied on the stand 
that he committed perjury under oath. And I, I asked him, I said, well, did the prosecutor know this? And he said, well, it was common knowledge. And so I said to him, well, were you surprised that the prosecutor didn't say anything about you lying on the stand? And, and Dwight, who he has deep insights into how the system works, he says, no, I wasn't surprised that they let me lie. That's how the system works. Anybody who plays by the rules is going to lose. You know, and when I heard a guy who's involved with, who is probably chiefly responsible for framing Calvin Buwari, admit that he lied on the stand and say that he, pro he lied on the stand probably with the full knowledge of the prosecution, I mean, that, that to me is very chilling and, and you know I, one of the things i'm proud about with empire on blood is that you know we're able to get at these individual acts by characters by real people that change the course of the history of the people involved but we're also able to take a close look at the system how it enables and profits from exactly these kinds of interactions we are speaking with Steve Fishman. He has a podcast which you can find on iTunes, Empire on Blood. I want to toss it to Max to see if Max has any uh, questions for you, Mr. Fishman. Max, you there? Yes, sir. Can you hear me clear enough? I can, Max. Go ahead. Hello? I can. Oh, okay, great. Um, I put up the links on New Abolitionist Radio to your podcast as well as the story about uh the uh, brother who you were uh, working with towards his freedom. So if you want to uh, check those links, just go to New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook and you can find it there. Uh, we'll also put it on our BTR community page. So I was listening to you talk and I did have one disagreement and I had a couple of comments that I wanted to make about a few things. <clears throat> one is you were saying that the story that you're telling right here about this this brother who went through all of this really is much more common than you might expect. And we are witnesses to that in particular because, as Scotty said, every week we read one of these brothers' stories or sisters' stories mm -hmm. or young kids' stories every week, and we've been doing it for quite some time now. So we are really very aware that this is not an isolated incident. This is something that is happening everywhere in every state and every city across America, particularly to young black males and it hasn't ended since it began or allegedly began back in the 90s or the 70s it's still going on in the same way uh, and the process these brothers go through is almost like a script now because they're all doing the same exact thing they run their campaigns from the prison phone and their uh, charisma and their ability to get people involved and investment uh, invested in their story is something that is in integral. It's, it's extremely important because without their voices, you really won't be heard. And if you're blessed to get somebody like you, uh, Brother Fisher, who really tells the story in detail, that makes it even much better. Because, you know, there are people like Mumia and Peltzer and Ricky Kidd who are international uh, names that mm -hmm. people know about who are fighting for their freedom. So it is very, very much commonplace. Uh, the, it, it's, it's wonderful when somebody like yourself grabs a hold of one of these stories and puts it out into the atmosphere so the world can see these tragedies and the type of corruption involved and the casualness of how you deal with people's lives like they don't really matter 
the one thing that I did disagree with you, uh, Mr. Fisher, on is what you said in earlier on that this really is mass incarceration. Here in New Abolitionist Radio, we really don't see it like that at all. Uh, if it were truly mass incarceration, it would be four million white men in prison because they're all <laughs> things considered being equal. 74% of the population, there would be four million white men in prison, and that's not the case at all. Uh, we call it modern-day slavery and human trafficking, which is allowed through the 13th Amendment and is functioning throughout our entire justice system, which follows market values. And when they put these young men and women in these prisons and jails, they charge this taxpayer as much as $350,000 a year just to house them for one year. And that's in New York, where you're talking about. It was going on particularly... Badly in Rikers Island, where the cost to house an inmate like Khalif Browder is is one hundred and sixty five thousand dollars a year. Yeah. <laughs> There's a profit margin involved here, and they don't mind letting a lot of things slide, including constitutional violations, as long as there's a body in a cell for as long as it can possibly be there. I mean, we you know, see I... how all of these industries are connected to this prison system. We have huge industries, billion dollars industries built around simple things like providing slippers or potato chips mm. or, you know, yeah. ramen noodles. It's crazy. <laughs> I hear you. And, you Go know, it, I, I think it, you see this in the in the most dramatic way in the privatization of the prison system. It's, it's big business. And, you know, like like any business it's run, you cut costs. And your margin of profit goes up. So, so what is? Uh, I mean, what's the motivation to do right by any anybody? I mean, what's the motivation to provide uh, programs or enrichment or you know any distraction? Uh, it's just not there. You are right that it is a market-based economy, and I, I do think that in the private side, and and it is big business, the private the private side of prisons you just see this in a in a extremely dramatic and and frightening way and, and you know to your other point i i, I do focus on uh, calvin buari but you know because of my involvement in this i have come into contact with and in some cases become friends with other other people other black men who have been in this situation so you're absolutely right it's it's all too common. Um, one of the people who was a great influence on me in getting into this podcast is a guy named, he's part of the of Empire on Blood, part of the podcast. His name is Emel McDowell, and he was a 17-year-old honor student in Brooklyn when he was picked out of a crowd and convicted of a murder, which it took him 19 years to convince a, a court he was not guilty of. And, you know, he, he the reason that, that he, I mention him is because he is an extremely bright, like Calvin Boar, he's an extremely bright man who taught himself the law. I mean, you know, a lot of people uh, talk about jailhouse lawyers, but Emel really was a top flight jailhouse lawyer who takes Calvin under his wing and helps him with his case. And then Emel writes the appeal that gets him out of prison after 19 years. And then Calvin 
follows that up by reaching out to email once email's out and email helps him with his legal problems because email has actually gone to work for a criminal defense firm now and he is helping people who were in his position uh, uh, email you know is one of the really kind of unsung heroes of this podcast but in my in my research in my journey i met all too many people who were put in the position of having to fight the system on a constant basis and fight it in isolation and teach themselves the law and beg attorneys to help them out for no money and and it is a tragedy that this continues to go on we're we're friends, uh, close friends with many members of the Jailhouse Lawyers Guild. You know they have their own guild now, and uh, there's a lot of brothers and sisters that had to become jailhouse lawyers into order to fight their case. An example would be uh, a young brother I, I know, who uh, Daryl Paget, who was arrested mm-hmm. with less than a gram of cocaine, and they gave him thirty seven years, thirty seven and a half mm-hmm. years for less than a gram of cocaine. So he became a jailhouse lawyer and got himself out in 20 wow. years and uh, he wow. even inspired President uh, Obama at the time who wrote him a letter so wow. it's part of the process that they have to go through to, to learn these things if you want any hope of being out ever because the yeah. number of people who are locked behind bars uh, for who are innocent or the crime doesn't fit the time is just amazing. Today's uh, person who we are highlighting for our rider of the 21st century underground railroad is getting out who just got out last week after 45 years 45 wow. years wow. it's crazy that's, it's crazy out there. See, we see a lot of constitutional crises happen for instance people talk about this cash bail which keeps people in and you know mm-hmm. 90% of people who are 95% of people who are in there are people of color who can't afford to pay those bails but that's not uh, something you can reform that's a violation of the 8th amendment which guarantees you protection from uh, cruel and unusual punishment and excessive uh, bails and fees. And that's happening yeah. every day. That's a constitutional crisis. And as a person who is familiar with law and the Constitution, would you agree with me? I would agree with you. And I, I, I think I to, to Max's point as well, you know, it's part of the market economy. I mean, bail bondsmen are, are making a ton of money. And, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to say, no, I'm not going to pay the money to get my loved one out of prison? I mean, talk about a crisis moment. You know, you really don't have a choice. You're really going to pay whatever it takes to get that loved one out of prison. So, you know, this is, it's a constitutional crisis, and and it's just made so much worse by the the profit motive that, that people latch on to, that people subscribe to, and... Uh, you know, in exchange for what? A conscience? Hello? Max, are you there? I've lost you. I'm sorry, Dad. I had myself muted. I didn't have my mixer right. Um, The question I would like to ask you is, how did you go from talking about a financial crimes of Bernie Madoff to 
Calvin Buari story and then Empire on Blood. What piqued your interest in, and and why are you so involved now? Well, the the uh, the gentleman I just mentioned, Emel, was a guy he he uh, been uh, convicted of murder and then wrote the appeal that got him out. And he and I became friends around his his case. He'd written to me from prison. I'd been involved for some time. And then when he got out, uh, he and I had a friendship, really. And one day he says to me, you know, here's a file of Calvin Buari. I think he's innocent. And Emel's opinion meant a lot to me. It just did. He, he was a guy who I think is credible and trustworthy and smart and I said okay well I'll talk to Cal and Cal calls me on the phone and and I'm sure you've all gotten phone calls like this you know you you hear somebody and you hear that despair in their voice and you also hear that despair that they're trying to muffle and keep contained because you know they they're trying to shout you know I need help but they know if they're shouting then it then people are going to run away. So uh, there's this moment when I, I kind of hear this despair in Cal's voice, and, and I start to think, and again, let me emphasize, my life could not be more different than Cal's, but I, I do uh, imagine what it's like to have an entire criminal justice system stacked against you. And there you are at a prison payphone trying to rattle off in 30 seconds the the evidence of your innocence it's an impossible situation for any person to be in and i i'm gripped by that moment really and in in some ways it kind of changed a lot of my life and 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 set me on this journey and and what i say to cal is you know cal i'll take the next step send me the transcripts of your of your trial And, and i mentioned the kinds of things i saw in those transcripts about people being given get-out-of-jail-free cards and, and witnesses with uh, their identity, identities being held secret. And, and, and But I think for me, when I was reading those transcripts, the thing that also really struck me is the reaction of the judge. The, the, the judge in a transcript is what happens in court, but they also transcribe what happens in the judge's chambers between the two lawyers and the judge out of earshot of the jury. So I had a fuller view of what was going on and going on in the mind of a, a judge who was seeing it all. And, and at one point he says, for all I know, there's a call out to every drug dealer in the northeast part of the United States. Come testify and you'll get a jail out of free card. And, you know, this is the judge. He's saying this out loud and and for me it was it was reading stuff like that it was imagining cal being at the the other end of that and thinking i I can't i can't not get involved i can't not take another step if i can help well again um actually you didn't have to because there's a lot of people who take the opposite approach and say it's not my problem. 
Okay, so, you know, that says something about your character. But we do have a caller from the New York area. I I do believe this is Brother Thomas, area code 347. Thank you for calling in the New Abolitionist Radio. We're speaking with Steve Fishman, and he has a podcast about what we've been speaking on called Empire on Blood, which you can find on iTunes. Did you have a question or a comment for Mr. Fishman? Good evening, Scotty. Good evening to the guest and um, to, to Max as well. Um, I didn't. I had a question for Max. Um, however, the, what the guest is talking about is um heartfelt story. Um, did you say, Max, that it's three hundred fifty-five thousand dollars a year to house a prisoner in New York State? Prisoner in New York State. For a teenager, yes, and for an oh, adult for in Rikers Island, it's over a hundred and six. Yes, for like Khalif Browder. He was $360,000 a year nearly. That's how much he was making for the three years that he was there. They were making 360000 For an adult in the same facilities, it's over 160000 Yes, I think New York has the highest per incarceration cost in the nation for juveniles. For juveniles. Yeah. And yes. they got them and, home. Uh, Florida has the least... In the worst conditions, um, I, I yeah, for three hundred sixty thousand dollars, you should be living in a mansion. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then I'm seeing the um the documentary they just put out where the kids have this game and they have to follow the program and all this stuff. And I mean, and the CEO was just like letting it happen. Unbelievable. I, I mute my line. That was my question because that when I heard that, it just like it stunned me. Like, oh my god. Um, Thank you. Enjoy the show and um, commend the work you and Scotty do, Max, and um, the gentleman that's also speaking. Thank you. Thank you for your call. We have another caller, and also from the NYC area, I believe this is Brother Ross, or it may be uh, Brother Tag. I'm not sure which. Uh, 646, thank you for calling in to New Abolitionist Radio. We're on tonight with Mr. Steve Fishman, who is the producer of the podcast Empire on Blood. Go ahead with your question and comment. Yes. Uh, peace, Steve Fishman. Peace to you, Brother Scotty, and to Brother Max and uh, everyone else. Um, that that's keeping out new abolitionist radio. This is Tag. What's on your mind tonight, Tag? Well, uh, quite a bit right now, matter of fact. Um, but you know, while the guest is on the line, I, I did have some questions um, for him. Uh, so, um, Steve Fishman, I was just uh, wondering, uh, based on your extensive research into this case. Um, just off top, like, what would you say is the uh, frequency of these kinds of uh, wrongful convictions, these kinds of frame-ups uh, in New York? Uh, from, from what you could tell, and perhaps you've spoken to other heads who were inside um, as you were conducting your research, does this seem to be common to you? What, what seems to be the frequency of these kinds of frame-ups? Well, the, you know, the statistics are obviously hard to come by. I think uh, to Scotty and Max's point, it does seem like we read about them every week or or even sometimes more frequently. And, um, you know, I follow the Innocence Project, and it seems like sometimes there's two a week. It, it's, it's very difficult to come by n- numbers of people that are 
in prison unjustly, though I've heard uh, estimates from people connected with the Innocence Project that it could be as many as 100,000 inmates. It could be as many as 100,000 people who are wrongfully convicted. Um, Certainly there have been some number whose cases have come to light and there was this kind of magnificent moment when DNA testing arrived and suddenly you could find out that, hey, guess what? He wasn't at the scene of the crime. He wasn't, that wasn't his blood. And that really suddenly, I think, exploded the idea that that cops have the answers. I I think that, that, you know, that's one of the things that for a, a mass population has really been somewhat somewhat of a, a positive experience is that we and I, I mean I mean the general public now I believe accepts the fact that the Justice Department is not always just and so the prejudice in favor of the government that on an individual basis in the court, I think to some extent that that's been diminished. I mean, we un, you know we unfortunately see lots of tragic cases, and and maybe the biggest tragedy is that we're not surprised by them anymore. Um, so I think numbers are hard to get by, come by. But you know, if if there's if there's even one person, then it, it's one too many. I would um like to interject, <clears throat> excuse me, Steve, that Tag is um actually an intern for our nonprofit media um our nonprofit media organization here in North Carolina, but he is our NYC representative, uh been working with us uh since he came in contact with Black Talk Radio and wrote a paper, a college paper about our network, but he's more importantly a abolitionist in the uh New York area and I'm just putting that out there in case y'all want to connect up and uh, work on some projects together but Tag you said you had some other questions yes and um, I much appreciated on that brother Scotty because that that segues directly into another question that I had um, which is more important than you know some of the other questions that um, I, I would like to address if, if there's time but um are you aware, uh, Steve Fishman, of the events, the, the murder, um, from what I can tell, uh, the, the, it's unclear as yet because it seems the information is being highly suppressed, heavily suppressed as usual, but are you at all aware of this shooting death of this brother in Crown Heights at the hands of the NYPD slave catchers this afternoon? Oh, no, I haven't heard about that. Do you have details on that this afternoon? Yes, uh, the details are very uh, slow to be released. It is, in fact, um, last I checked, not even posted as yet on killedbypolice.net, but uh, the general details seem to be that uh, this brother was known to be on this block outside of this particular fruit stand on the regular, um, had some sort of um, issues, uh, whether physical or, or mental. It's unclear as yet. But based on um, testimony provided by uh, a relative of his, a, a young sister, um, he was, you know, having difficulties, has had long-term 
difficulties, but um, never, you know, was known to bother anyone and was um, shot at least uh, seven, possibly 10 rounds were, were shot at him. And, and uh, he died at Kings County Hospital um, uh, out in Crown Heights. And um, it, it appears that there are still uh, many heads there at the scene um, trying to discern what exactly happened. There, it also seems that the majority of the slave catchers who um, were there when this occurred were VTs, uh, were, were plain clothes, and only two of them uh, were uniformed. And it doesn't seem that they actually uh, presented who, who they were, identified themselves before uh, proceeding to, to shoot and kill him. And uh, they're alleging that he was holding a metal pipe in a, in a fashion that was uh, threatening to them in a two-handed stance. That, those, those are the general details from what I can tell thus far. I'm seeing it online now in the Daily News as an article. NYPD cops shoot, kill, mentally ill, black man holding metal pipe. That's what the headline is in the Daily News. I guess we'll find out more about this as we go on. Uh, Tag, um, also, because you are there and you've been very involved in the Bronx 120 case, uh, would you like to ask Mr. Uh, Fishman about anything concerning, you know, this tactic in New York of using... Rico charges to cause he you know when we talk about people being murdered but when you have someone who has been convicted of murder sentenced does the time and then people just because of so called gang affiliation are then later swept up um, you know which is uh, what is represented in the Bronx 120 case tag if you could lay that out for, for us I, I would like to know what Mr. Fishman thinks about that Absolutely. I appreciate your uh, presenting that because, in fact, um, we're coming up against the two-year commemoration of the April 27th raiding of our community, uh, particularly in this instance, the Eastchester Gardens community primarily, um, but others as well, um, which uh, I would imagine you heard about, uh, Steve Fishman, this um, terroristic uh, large-scale <clears throat> shock and awe raid that uh, descended on the East Chester Garden community under, under um, you know, dead of night, uh, April 27th of 2016. Uh, do you recall that raid? I don't tag, but go ahead, fill me in. So essentially under extremely flimsy uh, quote-unquote evidence, uh, RICO charges were leveled against primarily uh, dark-skinned, uh, you know, non-white youths, primarily, um, uh, and the RICO charges were behind essentially, um, you know, uh, alleged association, as Brother Scotty mentioned, um, this question of, of so-called gang affiliation. So um, being... Uh, purported to be a part of street families and under the aegis of being a part of street families, uh, this, this group of the 120 individuals, uh, were all put up on federal charges. And, um, this has been an ongoing, um, problem, uh, with, with that particular case of the 120 individuals who have, of course, run the gamut of all sorts of 
you know, uh, terror, terrorism that's uh, befallen themselves and their families uh, off of being, you know, held in federal detention centers. Some now are, are imprisoned. Um, you know, uh, many, in fact, are, are now imprisoned at, at this point. Um, some have, you know, since been released. But furthermore, uh, you may be familiar with the permanent exclusion uh, rules um, or policy of NYCHA, which um, allows NYCHA to essentially uh, threaten eviction to family members of those who have been arrested, uh, simply arrested, not necessarily um, actually convicted of anything. But through this ruling, um, many many heads uh, that were uh, taken in, that were uh, encaged and put into you know prison slavery in some form or another behind this this raid um alleging association many of which many of these associations of course being completely bogus and I, i'm sure you're familiar with these kinds of tactics given the research that you've been doing particularly in the bronx but under extremely flimsy um, so-called evidence m mainly drawn from social media interactions and you know allegations around you know things things as uh, seemingly frivolous as as music video um you know music videos or social media um activity these 120 individuals um are are, are facing or have faced many you know many of them now um suffering under the fact that they were charged with these federal charges um, which, in fact, and it's been covered on this network, thankfully, um, in depth, uh, which, in fact, has allowed for many of them to uh, face what is usually termed double jeopardy, because under these federal charges, um, heads who have done time or been charged already with a, a so-called crime can be uh, sent up for that same, you know, infraction, and, in fact, have in many instances. Well, that's an amazing story. I'm I'm familiar with parts of that, um, and in particular, I've run into the situation where the the New York Housing Authority will ban entire families from the premises, basically a victim, because one family member is accused of a crime. So suddenly, you have these repercussions throughout a whole system based on an arrest, which as you say, maybe the flim based on the flimsiest of circumstances. It's it's kind of incredible. And without a conviction. Without conviction, and it, it it is incredible the effects that this can have throughout an entire community. Well, Mr. Fish Fishman, tag unless you have something else because we're running a, a little over. Um, but of course, we can make time for for you. But if you have some other questions, if you would like to get those out, so that we can conclude our segment with Mr. Fishman. Well, uh, I I would like to perhaps revisit this question of the uh, murder, uh, or it seems to me a murder that occurred uh, this afternoon, um, as well as related issues around these so-called gang raids. Uh, I'm happy to you know, mute, mute my line and, and hold off until um, y'all conclude the interview. The, the only other thing off top that I did want to raise um, to Steve Fishman, particularly because I, I seem to mentioned on, um, 
on your uh, social media page um, a retweet around this question. There was a lot of um, attention about this New York Times article that dropped uh, somewhat recently um, highlighting uh, what's termed so-called uh, um, test lying on the part of the NYPD and, 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 mm. and other you know, slave catchers. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on this phenomenon of so-called test lying because from my perspective, usually that's just termed uh, perjury, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, nobody ever gets uh, charged with perjury, it turns out. Cops, uh, uh, you know, listen, I don't think everybody gets up there in lines, but it's it's all too too common. And stories get shaded and, and stories are meant to conform to the prevailing view, to the most useful view, to the prosecution. And, you know, I don't think sadly any of us are, are surprised by that. But what I ran into and one of the things, and it's a related thing, when I was, again, reading this transcript of Cal Buari's 1995 trial, and, you know, again, that's in Empire on on Blood, the podcast, one of the things that continually happens is that a detective takes the stand and the defense attorney says, well, uh, you interviewed this witness or this witness, well, can you show us your notes? And and the detective says, oh, I didn't take any notes. And you're left stunned. I mean, it's got to be one of two things. It's either he's lying and the notes are somewhere, or he's been instructed not to take notes so that the defense would not be able to discover what the witness actually said to the cops. I mean... Either way, it, it, it kind of feels like another way of rigging the system. Now, I understand there are bad guys. You know, there are people who should be in prison. There's no doubt. I think we can stipulate to that. But the, the, the system can't be rigged in favor of conviction. It's got to be set out to pursue justice and one of the things and the last thing and then I'll leave you and thank you for having me is the prosecutor in Calvin Buari's case um, was a guy who I think the facts show and the podcast shows at some point really sought conviction over justice and that that's a, a heavy charge to level at one individual who will tell you that he served his his state and the public. But what I discovered is that, in fact, he had previously been admonished by a federal court judge for exactly that same thing. It was about five years before the conviction of Calvin Buari. A federal judge named Denny Chin had released two men convicted of murder in the Bronx and said, basically, I cannot believe that the district attorney did not more thoroughly investigate this case and did not come to the conclusion that these men were innocent. And I am taking the extraordinary measure of releasing them today. And he goes on to really dress down and scold the district attorney, saying, your job is not to seek convictions. Your job is to seek justice. 
and the prosecutor in that case was the same prosecutor that prosecuted Calvin Buari five years later. And the one note I'll add to that is it did not affect his career at all. He could be dressed down, he could be accused, he could be convicted, so to speak, of having really done a bad deed. And still, at the end of the year, he got his raise. And I think that one of the things we're finding out, and Tesla Lying certainly speaks to that point, is that within the criminal justice system, it is very difficult to hold people, whether they're detectives or prosecutors or anybody else, it's very difficult to hold them accountable. And that only really want- breeds more misconduct when you know there's likely not to be any repercussions. Yes. I, I think you're right. I, I was just going to thank you for having if, me tonight. If I may, before before we let you go, if I may say sure. a couple things. Um, the first thing is for the first caller that uh, called in earlier asking about the cost of incarcerating youth, there's a video we created for New Abolitionist Radio called The Cost of Living, and it gives you the exact uh, number of every state, 47 states that we could find the information on, along with a video that goes along with it, spoken word video. So you can check that out there. We were talking earlier about uh, the RICO charges being used against the gang members out in New York. Well, the same thing is happening out in Mississippi right now. And they found out uh, that everybody, every single person that was being arrested under these drug charges were black people from 2010 Mm. to 2017. You mean gang charges, gang affiliation We're talking about 97,000 people. (laughs) 97,000 black people in one state that were arrested under these RICO charges. So this is happening in in other places as well. And I I want to quantify some of the questions that came up about how many people are wrongfully incarcerated. There's a study that stated that in 17% of the uh, cases, jury cases, the jury is wrong. 17%, that's a big number. And then another study came out and said 40% of those prisoners that we have now housed shouldn't even be there. There's no reason for them to be in prison. So when you add those two up, you're talking about nearly a million and a half people who are incarcerated that should not be. That's amazing. That is well, amazing. I'd like to, again, thank you for coming and sharing this story with us. Uh, if you want to check out his podcast, it's Empire on Blood, the newest true crime podcast to binge on. And one of our listeners did binge on it. Uh, shout out to Otis, who said he watched all seven of them already. So I look forward to watching them as well. I want to ask you, to do us a favor, though, you're an investigative journalist. Look into the 13th Amendment and mm-hmm. look at the, the connection it has to the largest prison population in the history of humanity on planet Earth. You will be wow. surprised at what you find. I will do that. Yes, and sir. Thank you, thank you so much. Me. Well, Mr. Fishman, Have a great day. if uh, anyone would night. like to contact you, how would they get in touch with you? And to the other callers, I'm sorry, we got to end the segment. We are overdue for our break. And when we come back on the other side, we can take your calls if you want to add some commentary. But Mr. Fishman, you got any final words for our listeners and how they can, again, they, of course, can access your podcast, Empire on Blood, on iTunes. Um, but is there anything else you would like to leave with them? Well, I, I, I guess I would just like to leave. Uh, thank you again. And, and, and hope that the podcast 
hope that it entertains you, hope that it moves you, and hope that it it, it maybe mm, helps you decide that there's things that you can get involved in to make sure wrongful convictions don't happen. I think, you know, everybody has a role to play, and I, I hope one of the things from Empire on Blood, I think one of, I hope one of the things is that it alerts you to the ways in which things can go wrong and the specifics of them. And I think that there's a role that we can all play, whether it's at the ballot box or as TAG is doing, helping make videos and make people aware. But I, I, I do think that this is a situation that needs to be addressed forcefully. And again, I want to thank you. And, and Otis, please write a review on iTunes about your experience of, <laughs> of listening. Of listening to to, to Empire on Blood, uh, I do really appreciate it. To all those people who've listened and and written comments, it's it's been the number one podcast in the country for a few days now, and and that's incredibly gratifying to me. And and by the way, to Calvin Bluey, uh, who uh, who may be listening in. But thanks again, guys. I'll let you go. All right, Mister Fishman. Yes, you have a good evening. Bye bye. Amazing, man. And, you know, I don't think he mentioned it about uh, Calvin Duari, but uh, he's actually running his own business from what I read on the article now where he's transporting uh, visitors, family members back and forth to the prisons. So uh, in the article was saying he shows up at the uh, prison with his business card, giving it to the prison guards. Well, Max, you want to take us to break? And um, I guess when we come back, we could uh, share a couple of news headlines before we get into our regular segments if we don't have any callers. Yes, indeed. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. You just heard from Steve Fishman, who is the author of Empire on Blood, the number one podcast in the country right now. We'll be right back after these messages. Hi, the Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. If you want to have a question or a comment and you want to join the conversation, feel free to join in and, uh, and with the conversation we're having here on New Abolitionist Radio. If you're already on the uberconference.com site, just press star star to unmute yourself and if you want to call in it's 704-802-5026 and Uh, we do have a caller Uh, area 
area code 816 out of the Missouri, uh, state of Missouri. Um, do you have a question or comment for us? Thank you for calling in the New Abolitionist Radio tonight. Yes, this is uh, Jeff Humfeld up in, in Kansas City. Hi, hey, Jeff. Jeff. Um, how are you doing tonight, Max? And Tired, but I'm good. <laughs> um, I hope, hope um, your wife is doing well. Um, I wanted to call in and talk just a little bit. You mentioned Ricky Kidd, and um, there has been development in his particular situation. Unfortunately, it's not been a particularly good development. Um, I think I had mentioned maybe a little while back that I went down to the Supreme Court hearing for Ricky. Um, they were trying to um, have his appeal heard here in Kansas City at, in Jackson County, um, and that was taken, you know, the state of Missouri um, objected to that and um, wanted it heard up in um, DeKalb County where the and um, they the state won their their thing so that means Ricky's got to start all over on this and um, go back to to court in DeKalb County now so it'd be at least another year before he's in court again to try and have this um, heard um, he did put he did put something up on his Facebook page um, yesterday and I'd like to read that if I could real quick um, yes please today as you know we are his publisher uh, we published yes, his book I, I, I know you are uh, today the Missouri Supreme Court ruled against my ability to have my case heard in Jackson County Often I'm left with no choice but to dream of winning my deserved freedom. But sometimes reality and dreams are the farthest apart. The best lawyers in the world, the most compelling facts of innocence you can find, a slew of influential and important local leaders standing behind you, a group of extraordinary supporters like you all, how do we continue to not see the favorable ruling? When will it ever show itself? It's like falling and never reaching the bottom or staring into a black hole. Somehow I'm expected to continue in strength and stride. I'll keep you posted on how that is going. Pray for me. Um, I was really lucky because last week I, I went down to visit Ricky at the Jackson County Jail and um, because they're so understaffed and out of, you know, just just totally inept. Um, we were 20 minutes late getting to start our visit, but they forgot to come get a get him. Um, and I ended up visiting with Ricky for two hours. Um, and I'm so glad now that I was able to spend that time with him. And and you know, we talked about a lot of things, especially about what he would do when he got out, and things of that sort. But um, what I would like to say is, you know, he needs he needs um, your thoughts and prayers for sure right now. And you know, if you're on Facebook, go to Justice for Ricky Kid, and just leave your your comments and your your show of support for him there. Um, it will get to him, and I think that will be really help him at this time. So. Yes. That's basically what I, I wanted to let folks know is, is 
go to, to Justice for Ricky Kid on Facebook and, and leave your, your thoughts and let him know that there's a lot of us out here in support of him and his case. Pick up his book, too. Uh, it helps yes. to help the kids continue this fight. So go to his website website and pick up his book. It's a wonderful book uh, published by Prismatic Dreams. And for the six months that we were working on his book together here, he would call up uh, you know, almost every day at some points, and we had so many conversations. For those that don't know, Ricky Kidd was incarcerated in 1996, uh, falsely incarcerated, crimes he did not commit. The mayor says he didn't commit it. The prosecutor says he didn't commit it. Even the arresting officers and police chief are like, no, he didn't commit it. But for some reason, he's still in prison. And the Midwest Innocence Project has been trying to help to get him out. So as Jeff just said, that wasn't good news. It means he's starting all over from scratch, and it's heartbreaking. So our hearts go out to you, Ricky, and to your family who is going through this with you. Max, what's the website where they can pick up the book? FreeRickyKid.com FreeRickyKid.com And kid, is that with two D's or one? Uh, That's with two D's. Okay. Two D's, indeed. You know, we try to do whatever we can to help them in these times. And uh, even if it's just praying, you know, that collective positive thought maybe sometimes makes a difference. And Jeff, thank you. I, I yes, want yeah, I want to thank you for the work and your involvement on these very, very important issues. Which I feel like there's nothing more important than confronting this system of slavery that has impacted so many so negatively. So thank you for the work and your involvement in this case. Well, thank you for what you guys are doing as well, and um, uh, we'll we'll be talking with you again one of these days. I'm sure. Indeed, brother. I'll probably see you soon, too. Um, Because they're talking about the Missouri Cure Conference happening again, and maybe we'll be able to come out there once again. We have another caller, um, 646. Um, Thank you for calling in the New Abolitionist Radio. I believe this is Tag again. Tag? Yes, peace. Uh, Pardon for just uh, jumping back on the line so, so quickly, but appreciate your picking back up. Um, well, so bef- before I uh, discuss uh, what I was looking to discuss, which uh, essentially has uh, to do with the uh, Bronx 120, which we were discussing before, and this issue of um, so-called gang raids, I just wanted to check in and make sure, um, Brother Max, did you get the um, posts? Did you see the posts uh, that uh, were put up uh, that you had requested? I just wanted to make sure that you knew no, that. actually, I didn't see them, but I went out and found them. So I, I had planned to talk about it today, but I don't think we're going to have time to really go into the detail of everything that's happening there. So I'll, I might have to hold it off till next week. But I did find that uh, letter that the, or actually was talking to the cadets and telling them what they shouldn't pay attention to. Is that the one you were telling me about? Yes, exactly. Um, it was that, and you had also asked that I post the interview um, which was part one of um, interviewing around inside-outside organizing uh, with a comrade uh, who has recently come home. So I, I put those into BTR community. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if, if yeah, you meant see. for me to put them elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, I'll go check it out there. But I just posted the one where the uh, that we were just talking about a moment ago where the – pull up this headline for it here – it's on New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, you can find it there. And it's in response to Larry Krasner and what he's doing in Philadelphia. 
and apparently the FOP president is criticizing those comments and talking to the academy cadets, telling them what they should and shouldn't do and uh, right in the face of Krasner's memo, what he plans on doing to stop mass incarceration. Right. Thanks, Ted. Right. Oh, oh, absolutely. No, no question. Anytime. And, you know, so I just wanted to clear that up in case um, you, you hadn't seen it because I, you know, I didn't see a, a reply to it and it occurred to me that maybe you, you were looking for yeah. it, um, you know, elsewhere. So just yes. wanted to. Um, yes, I, I will get that one indeed. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. And, um, you know, as we know, this is a longstanding uh, issue with, with the slave catchers uh, going rogue, so to speak, and, you know, feeling as though uh, the the authority that they're allotted extends past those who, um, you know, uh, write their marching orders. Um, so this not, it shouldn't be surprising, but um, I did, I just wanted to kind of go back to this question of the two-year commemoration of the Bronx 120 raids and just to um, point out and to update for everyone um, who may have heard the interview with heads uh, involved in IWOC um, putting together a welcome home event, uh, just to update that the it looks at present as though that event is now going to take place on the 27th of April, um, this month, April 27th, uh, to be a part of a dual event um, that speaks to the commemoration of the April 27th terroristic, uh, quote unquote, gang raid that occurred uh, with respect to the Bronx 120, as well as a celebration of our comrades who have come home, those who we will be highlighting and celebrating uh, specifically at that event, as well as any and all others who perhaps are not looking looking to you know be identified uh, specifically or by name, but any and all of those who are back home out here. That that event will be taking place now on the 27th, in conjunction with other looks to not only celebrate the fact of those who have withstood that terrorism, that those terroristic shock and awe tactics, but also to condemn those who enacted that kind of terrorism on our communities. So that'll be on the 27th of, of this month in the Bronx and uh, more information certainly will be forthcoming and y'all will be the, the first ones you know, to, to get updated information, uh, you know, so that I have any updates on that, that, that I get. Awesome. Thank you. Tag. All right. So, um, let's move on to our regular segments. We're just going to skip that last break. Um, I do want to thank all the callers for calling in and expressing their point of views and their questions for our guests. And of course, we want to thank uh, Mr. Fishman for taking the time out to spend with us and and share um, his thoughts on these issues as well as uh, his podcast, Empire on Blood. So, Max, do we want to, is there a couple of headlines you wanted to share that really stood out that you wanted to get out? Yes, sir, there is. And as a matter of fact, what we can do is there's two particular stories that I just want to cover briefly out of all of them that we have. And while I'm doing that, if you could do the honor of pulling out the abolitionist in profile 
And Already got it history. up, brother. Great. It's his speech, and uh, we can read his speech to the world. Um, the first thing I want to tell you about is what we said in the intro and earlier in the program regarding Mississippi's uh, crime unit. It's called the Mississippi State Gang Assessment, also known as MAGI, which is some really arrogant stuff. Oh, you're a magician, huh? A wizard. But apparently, they told uh, the clarion out there that 53% of the gang members they were arresting were white. So the, uh, they're looking into this, trying to find out you know, where they get this number from. And apparently, they pulled it out their ass. Because <clears throat> the truth of the matter is, the administration administrative office of the courts confirmed that from fiscal year 2010 through 2017, court disposition data showed that 97 people were processed under current gang law. All of them were black. Of those 97,022 pled guilty. Four were dismissed. One faced house arrest. 11 were no bill dismissed. One was non-educated. 53 reprimanded, passed to the file, and five had probation revoked. The administration office of the courts confirmed from 2010 to 14, it was seldom used, fewer than 30 dispositions. DeGray explained in an email, the last two years of data indicates 32 indictments disposed of per year. These came from five of the 22 districts, but primarily from Forest and DeSoto counties. So apparently, all they're resting under these gang laws is black people. And the other thing I wanted to point out to you that there's a no. Wait a minute, Max. No neo-Nazis. No, <laughs> you know, Anglo terrorists. You know, because they got gangs too. Nope. And they were talking about white gang members when they put the damn law into play, but it didn't apply to any. Um, the other thing I want to tell you about is there's a new sheriff in town, and uh, this just, it's just shameful every time. Uh, let me just read this briefly. April 20th, 2017. This was last year. Um, maybe you didn't know it. But Secretary Eric A. Hooks of the Department of Public Safety named Kenneth Lassiter as the new director of prisons effective uh, just last May. Lassiter will replace George Solomon, who is retiring after 33 years of service. Lassiter will oversee 55 state prisons that house more than 36,000 and a half inmates. The state prison system has a budget of approximately $1.2 billion and more than 17,000 employees. And this guy is a 28-year corrections veteran. But the thing that stands out for me the most, more than anything else, Scotty, is it's another black man in charge of the largest prison population in the history of humanity right here on planet Earth. The second one now in a row. And he's smiling so happily in his picture where they show them on there, but there's no rhetoric in here about changing anything. Yeah, so, so that's why that's why I don't look to unify with people around color of skin. I want to unite with people that's trying to implement justice and most importantly trying to end slavery, which would be an implementation of justice. And we just don't simply have justice. And too many people have a vested uh, profit motive in keeping things the way they are and unfortunately as you put out some of those people look like the primary victims of slavery yes sir and, and Scotty before you read the abolitionist and profile speech I would like you to know that the University of Detroit Mercy which houses the abolitionist uh, documents that we're reading also invites people to volunteer to read them so they can 
put them on the website. So, you know, if you read this tonight, maybe we can get it on their website. All right. So um, I'm not sure if this is birth date or death date, October the 4th, or this when he gave the speech. Um, his, uh, let me pull it up right here. His, uh, October 8th, 1825 is his date of birth. July okay, I got 29th, it. 1875 is his date of death. Got it, got it. All right, so our abolitionist in profile tonight for New Abolitionist Radio is Pascal Beverly Randolph, born October the 8th, 1825, and he transitioned on July the 29th, 1875. He was an African-American medical doctor, occultist, spiritualist, trans medium and writer he is notable as perhaps the first person to introduce the principles of erotic alchemy to north america and according to a.e weight establishing the earliest known now uh how would i pronounce this rosicrucian order in the united states rosicrucian rosicrucian order when you see the jesus white jesus holding the heart with the cross that's Rosicrucians. Okay. Dr. Rand, okay, now Max wants me to read a speech by this abolitionist. He gave his speech on October the 4th, um, 1864, at the proceedings of the National Convention of Colored Men, which was held in the city of Syracuse, New York. Dr. Randolph opened by saying that history constantly repeated itself that an all-wise providence dictated the paths of which men and nations must pursue and whenever they willfully forsook excuse me forsook those paths they were certain to be brought back sooner or later by the resistless right hand of the eternal god the overruling father brought out the sons of Abraham from Egyptian bondage 3,000 years ago, and today he leads us, the Negro race, with a strong arm from out of the swamps of slavery. He led the Israelites through the Red Sea over sandy wastes into the land of promise and plenty, glorious Canaan. And so now he is leading us and with us, this nation, through the Red Sea of human blood towards the glorious highlands of justice and freedoms. In the olden time, God passed in wrath over Egypt's hoary strand and smote the firstborn of the oppressor with quick and sudden death. And where is the house in this land, whether of the black man or the white? Those lintels and doorposts bear not the red sign, which have not been smitten with the splash of human gore, and yet his paths are plain. Let the nations take warning, God never sleeps. Wherefore, let us all take heart. He fights our battles, and where he fights, he wins. Wagner, Hudson, Petersburg, and all the other battles of this war have not been fought in vain. For the dead heroes of those and other bloody fields are the seeds of mighty harvests of human goodness and greatness yet to be reaped by the nations in the world and by Africa's sable descendants on the soil of this, our native land. Be of good cheer. Behold the starry flag above our heads. What is it? It is the pledge of heaven that we are coming up from the long dark night of sorrow towards the morning's dawn. 
It is the rainbow of eternal hope set in our heaven, telling us that we shall never again be drowned in our own salt tears, forced up from our very souls, great deaths by the worshipers of Moloch, bloody-handed mammon. It is guaranteed by and from the God of heaven that we, the mourners, may and shall be happy yet. My very soul leaps onward a full century and its vision falls on fertile fields with no slave driver there, no hearts crushed by fierce oppression, no more heads bowed down. I, my soul, listens already to the glad prelude of a song of triumph welling up from the myriad of hearts and swelling into a paean that fills the vast concave of heaven itself with the deep tone melodies of a universal jubilee. The body I now dress is to be not only an historical one, but if we do our duty as we will, the most important in its results and effects, not only upon us here banded together in the firm concord of brotherhood, but to the nations of the world in the ages yet to come. Here we are met not to hear each other talk, not to mourn over the terrible shadows of the past, but we are here to prove our right to manhood and justice and to maintain these rights, not by force of mere appeal, not by loud threats, not by battle axe and saber, but by the divine right of brains, of will, of true patriotism, of manhood, of womanhood, of all that is great and noble and worth striving for in human character. We are here to ring the bells at the door of the world, proclaiming to the nations, to the white man in his palace, the slave in his hut, kings on their thrones, and to the whole broad universe that we are coming up. Yes, we are at last and going up to stay. He loveth and chasteneth but he also saves, but saves those first who help themselves. Sheer folly to expect to be raised to a coveted position without self-endeavor. There are two great principles in operation in this world. One is that of progression, the other that of development. One is the body of success, the other is his soul. The one makes us scholars merrily, and the other makes us men. And that, and that only, is the pearl for which we are seeking. Progress means acquisition of knowledge, and it is very good and well applied. And yet a man may have a hundred libraries by heart. He may be master of a hundred sciences, a walking encyclopedia, and yet be wor a worthless drone in the world. It is not the thought gatherer who makes his mark in the world, but it is the thought producer who is the man of mark and value. Development means persistent culture of our latent powers and we need it. Slavery and ignorance, liberty and light. It is the mind, not the dollars, that makes the man. Here the orator turned toward the blood-stained flag of the Louisiana Regiment uh, apostrophized it, spoke of Calux and Ingram who fought and bled upon the field where it waved and with all his power besought his hearers never to disgrace it by word. And again, that is a speech that was given by Pascal Beverly Randolph who was born October the 8th, 1825 and transitioned from this earth on July 29th. 1875 and we at, here at New Abolitionist Radio salute the memory and the words of Pascal Beverly Randolph salute man there was one part of that that was so powerful I think I'll use it as my closing quote 
Right. Um, I'll begin with our rider of the 21st century Underground Railroad. Today, it is a Detroit man whose murder conviction was thrown out after he spent 45 years in prison, was exonerated Wednesday, and won't face the second trial. Rich, Rich, Rich Phillips, 71, was upbeat, saying the criminal justice system works. It just didn't work fast enough. A judge granted the prosecutor's request to permanently drop the case against Phillips, whose conviction was erased last year. He had been free on bond since December. Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy said a new investigation by her office backed his claim that he had no role in the 1971 fatal shooting. She said a key witness lied at this 1972 trial. There's nothing I can say to bring back 40 years of his life, Worthy said. The system failed him. This is a true exoneration. Phillips has spent more years behind bars than any wrongfully incarcerated person in this country. His lawyer, Gabby Silver, told Crimesider. She describes Phillips, an incredibly warm, engaging person who just wants to pick up the pieces and live a good, quiet life. The case was reopened at the urging of the Innocence Clinic at University of Michigan Law School after a co-defendant at the 72 trial told the state parole board that Phillips wasn't involved in the slaying of Gregory Harris. Phillips likely will be eligible for more than $2 million under under Michigan's wrongful conviction law. He is the first person to be exonerated by the Wayne County Prosecuting Attorney's new Conviction Integrity Unit, led by former defense attorney Valerie Newman. I've never carried bitterness around, so I'm not a bitter man, Phillips told reporters when asked about his decades in prison. One of his goals, a reunion with two children who were ages two and four when he went to prison in 1972. Despite publicity about his case, Phillips said he hasn't heard from them and doesn't know their whereabouts. You have seen the worst and best of the criminal justice system, Judge Kevin Cox told Phillips. And we hear a new abolitionist radio say, welcome to freedom, Brother Phillips. Welcome to freedom. And salute to all those who made that possible. It takes a village. It takes a team. And that's what we really need to be, a team. I'm I'm having a conversation tomorrow afternoon with groups from organizations who are fighting to reduce the prison population by 50% and prison abolitionists. We're going to have a conference call tomorrow, and we're going to try to get on the same page because we need to be. I agree. So let's go on to our final comments so I can prepare to get our next program on air, which is Mind, Body, and Spirit Radio, hosted by Sister Black Rose and Feather Light, um, heard right here on Black Talk Radio Network. Um, Max, I'll go first, as is customary. Okay. Um, yes, sir. I want to thank Steve Fisherman for joining us tonight and also the young lady who helped make that interview possible uh, by reaching out to me and informing me about the podcast Empire on Blood. You know, without storytellers, stories don't get told. So again, you know, I was talking earlier about the power of words and we should choose our words wisely. But at the same time, we should use our words to produce justice and expose injustice because like Dr. King said before he was so viciously taken from us uh, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere yes sir Scotty I uh, echo your sentiments and appreciations 
to our callers and our guests. Look out next week where our guest will be Mustafa Ansari, who is the dean for the American Institute of Human Rights and who is also leading the way in the charge for reparations. So that will be next week right here on New Abolitionist Radio. As I said in this speech uh, that was written or uh, spoken 150 years ago by, by Paschal Beverly Randolph, there was a quote, and I'd like to say it again. Progress means acquisition of knowledge, and it is very good if well applied. And yet a man may have a hundred libraries by heart. He may be a master of a hundred sciences, a walking encyclopedia, and yet be a worthless drone in the world. It is not the thought gatherer who makes his mark in the world, but it is the thought producer who is the man of mark and value. Paschal Beverly Randolph, our abolitionist in profile. Remember, abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know peace. Peace. Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise, see the signs of the times if it's time. Rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing. Rise up, when famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's Anger is no longer feared if his protection is gone and your enemies are near. If you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall. If the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, 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 rise up